How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to episode 23 of X-Lapsed, and uh, this is a late-night recording of X-Lapsed. Uh, today I spent some time with family at a uh, birthday party for my nephew, and uh, as a result, wound up spending a lot of time bouncing around a trampoline with my niece and nephew, which is very out of character for me, and uh, and so uh, your boy's a little punchy tonight. <laughs> He's aching a little bit, but uh, that will not stop us from discussing... The book we've uh, you know we've come here to discuss, and that is of course X Force number two. Let's hop right into it. This issue had a January 2020 cover date. The title is The Sword of Damocles, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors by Dean White, Lead is VC's Joe Caramagna, Design Tom Muller, Head of X is Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sabolski, cover price three dollars ninety-nine cents American on sale November twenty-seventh, twenty nineteen. Now we pick up, if you remember, last issue of X-Force ended with uh, Professor X, well, shot in the head and dead. Uh, So we pick up seemingly right after where we left off there. We have Magneto lifting uh, Xavier's Cerebro helmet, lamenting the fact that he wasn't able to save his old friend. Then we get this, like, full, you know, full scene shot of Xavier's body laid out in a field where he was hunted down. Uh, He's surrounded by many, many mutants, a real who's who, including some folks that I don't think we've seen yet in the post-Hox-Pox landscape here. See, Strong Guy, so uh, I guess he isn't still Satan, or the King of Hell, or whatever the hell he was. Uh, Dakin, uh, the son of Wolverine. Uh, Dr. Nemesis, uh, which reminds me, um, is Danger still a thing? Uh, You know, that, that sentient Danger Room character out of that... Lazy and delayed uh, Whedon run? Is that, is that still a thing that exists? Um, Shatterstar, Feral, Firestar, friggin' Mammomax, the elephant-faced mutant. He's here, too. I mean, it's insane how many characters they're cramming onto this page. Uh, it's worth noting, Betsy, Gambit, and Jubilee are here out of Excalibur, but we don't see Rogue. Also, Bishop's here. Though, in the most recent issue of Marauders that we discussed a couple episodes back, he does fill the team in on Xavier's passing, so it might stand to reason that he is here for, uh, for this scene. Really cool page. Um, so, many, uh, so many characters I haven't seen in a long time right here. I really, really enjoyed it. So, let's meet our cast. We've got Magneto, Jean Grey, Beast, Cecilia Reyes, Reyes um, Black Tom Cassidy, Sage, Wolverine, and Quentin Quire, Kid Omega. From here we get two pages of credits we'll never get back, and then comics. Magneto and Jean chat about how important it is to get everything back to normal. You know, bringing Xavier back, getting Cerebro back online, all that stuff. Jean thinks she can handle it, 
But Magneto says, hey, you know, don't think, do. You know, the success is the only real option here. He then uses his powers to manipulate the shattered Cerebro helmet into the shape of a sword. So we keep getting a sword imagery here. Uh, he tells Jean that there's a clock ticking. They gotta move fast. And so next thing we know, Jean is chatting up Beast. Hank talks about how crazy things have been and how strange it is for Xavier to, like, not require things like a dedicated security detail. You know, he's, like, out and about in the world. He's wheeling and dealing in Krakoa's best interests. And he does it alone. We saw it last issue. He went to, uh, I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> somewhere in, the, in Russia, I think. But he was by himself. So it is odd that Xavier isn't going with a, like, a mutant secret service of sorts. He is a head of state now, right? Hank mentions the Sword of Damocles, which uh, not only evokes the name of this issue, but it's a little bit another uh, sword reference. And uh, we keep getting those, and I guess we will continue to. Now, the pair head into the Cerebro Cradle Number 1, and uh, that's where one of the backup helmets are. Gene states that only one Cerebro can be live at a time, and it's going to be up to Henry to get this one back up and running. He's not so sure he can do it, but Gene tells him he's got to have faith. And, um... I think I talked about this last issue here. Uh, we're we're not going to be completely subtle. We're taking the less subtle approach here. Um, the logical scientist in Hank having to re- rely on his faith. And uh, I feel like we're going to be doing this sort of like belief gymnastics a lot here. Um, and I think I said this about Gambit uh, back in Excalibur number two, how he didn't believe in magic. And he thought Betsy was like crazy for seeing invisible people. I mean, would anybody in in the Marvel Universe only rely on logic? I mean, they've got gods, devils, they've met them. They've met gods and devils. They've gone to heaven. They've gone to hell. There's just too much extraordinary stuff in this universe to raise these kind of quandaries and, and make it seem authentic, right? I mean, they've seen so much that uh, that defies logic. And here we are with the with the scientists having to be having to, you know, push down to get some faith. I, very unsubtle, and it feels feels kind of forced. Now, from here, we get an info page breaking down the assassination of Charles Xavier from a security point of view. It's very corporate in structure here. It's sort of like a lessons learned or best practices document. Uh, if anybody out there is familiar with, you know, like a post-event corporate memo, like something happens at the office or in a warehouse or something, and it's like, okay, well, this is what we learned from it, and this is what we need to do in the future to prevent it. I mean, it's fine for what it is. Uh... We do learn here that there were 33 mutant deaths in the raid. Not that such a thing really matters anymore, but it's there if we want it. We head over to the Healing Gardens, where Cecilia Reyes is examining the bodies of the Wetworks crew from the last issue. She's joined by Sage and Black Tom, the latter of whom can't stop blaming himself for everything that's gone down. Is it really his fault, though? I mean, he did try to warn everybody, including Xavier. They just weren't listening, and Xavier threatened to fire him. Now, Reyes reveals that these characters had extra bones and accessories grafted into their bodies, to which Sage makes a reference that they're being outfitted sort of like the old uh, X-Men villains, the Reavers, which uh, is kind of a neat twist. Wolverine enters the room and asks the Morlock healer how many of these bad guys are still alive, and it's just one. Logan stops himself from killing that last one and overhears something quite interesting. Now, you remember how last issue, Sage got readings that Domino had returned as the, uh, as the comet of Wetworks characters were, were coming down from that plane. Well, there was a reason for that. 
And it's uh, it's that these Wetworks geeks had some of Domino's skin grafted onto their own. Wolverine's, uh, you know, he's heard enough. He decides it's time for him to go hunting. And he asks that Sage have Jean come in and try to read that last living Wetworks character's mind. Now, before we get to that, let's follow Wolverine. Let's see what he does here. He does a little Google search, and it brings him to a facility in South Korea. Here, he runs into Quentin Quire, who's uh, also hot on the trail of whatever it is that Wolverine's looking for. Now, apparently, we do learn something about Kid Omega. It's that he smells like a mixture of body spray, soda, and crotch, which is uh, some uh, wonderful smell visual in it. I gotta say, though, he does look the part. I feel bad for his bed. Um, now, Quentin reveals that he's here to take out the guys who took Xavier out, and he begins clickety-clacking in on a nearby console to get down to business. Back on Krakoa and back in the cradle, Hank wrestles some more with his faith and prayers and stuff, which, as mentioned, feels really forced. I mean, I get what they're going for here, but, you know, rather than making seem Hank seem, like, skeptically conflicted, all they're doing is making him into like a guy I'd never want to be stuck in an elevator with. It's just really forced and annoying. We hop back to South Korea, where Wolverine and Kid Omega make their way to another compound. Well, it looks like a printing press, and we'll soon find out that it sort of kind of is. Now, after KOing the guard detail, they saunter on in. What they find is, uh, yeah, this place is a printing press. But uh, rather than printing books, brochures, and junk mail, they're printing assassins. From nervous system to skin. Back to the healing gardens, Sage has called for Jean, and they keep examining. They're finding that many of these corpses' body parts have been made into, like, multitaskers. You know, it's as though they were assassins created in a lab. Or, you know, a weird South Korean printing press. Uh, Jean finally gets down to business of mind-reading, and, well, she gets herself a head full. A head full of what, you might be asking? Well, she doesn't know, and neither do I. It does waste an entire page, though, so there's that. From here, we hop into an info page, and perhaps this is some of what Jean saw. Uh, this is titled The Strange Case of Phineas Hook. Now, Phineas is a fellow that Domino had been tracking for Xavier, so maybe it's this dude? Uh, it's worth noting here that this fella, Phineas, he spent his evenings hanging out on anti-mutant chat rooms on the dark web. <laughs> Seriously? I mean... Are there chat rooms of any kind out there anymore? I mean, an anti-mutant chat room. Why? Why does it have to be on the dark web? I mean, <laughs> are we just are we just saying words that sound cool? Um, or I don't know. <laughs> so that's what we learned about Phineas for now. Back to the press. Logan and Quire keep looking for murdery merchant at the murdery merchandise when they find themselves under attack by basically globs of human-shaped muscle. Quire attempts to go on the offensive, however, he realizes that his powers aren't working. Wolverine's like, hey, too bad, but you can still kick, punch, and bite, so <laughs> do what you can do, and, uh, and Wolverine continues to hack away at the meat. Now, Quentin breaks away from the fight, and we wrap up with him stood before a giant canister, and inside it is Domino. And from the looks of it, great big swaths of her skin have been forcibly removed. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we will wrap up the Dawn of X number twos with Fallen Angels. But how about we talk about what we just read here? Let's let's take a look. I'm not hating the story. 
I'm really, uh, I'm actually liking the story, but I gotta say, um, and this is a complaint I had about Ben Percy when he was on Teen Titans here. He has this, like, very forced, or maybe it is just an unsubtle way of writing. Um, I think I mentioned it last time we discussed X-Force. It feels like he writes backwards from, like, a punchline or, like, a point that he feels is, like, poignant. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it kind of telegraphs a lot of the dialogue, making it feel rather inauthentic. You know, I don't believe it when they say it, right? It just feels... It feels like it's manufactured to make a point. It's kind of like, you know, when you come up to come up with like a comeback for a joke that, or you a comeback to an insult that no one's ever levied at you. So you think it's the most, it's it's you know the George Costanza jerk store thing from Seinfeld. You know, you have this awesome punchline or this awesome comeback, and you have it in your back pocket just waiting to use it, and you you just maybe you just can't sometimes. Maybe it's just not. An authentic conversation that's going to go in that direction And that's that's kind of how I feel about Percy's uh, dialogue sometimes um, I mean, we have what well, we have here with the Beast, right? He's trying to balance logic and faith Which, I mean, that's a struggle as old as time, right? Or at least as old as, you know, college freshmen coming home at Thanksgiving With a whole new set of ideals, you know? I feel like in the real world, sure have that quandary, have that internal debate, have that conflict. But we're in a world that's predicated on the concept of resurrection, right? This entire Hox Pox Docs landscape is based on resurrection. And uh, even the most skeptical among us might be a bit more open to displaying faith in that sort of a, in that sort of an environment, I'd feel. I don't know, maybe Beast is struggling with that as well, but I mean, he's seen it firsthand. I don't know, Just it just doesn't feel authentic to me. It feels like we're writing backwards. Um, let's talk about the bad guys here. The Wetworks team being a sort, being sort of revealed as a more assassin-y version of the Reavers, I like it. I think that's cool. Uh, it you know takes something from the X-Men's past, and it makes it a whole lot creepier and nastier. You know, I think that's a really cool thing to do. It... It brings them into the now. And, uh, you know, I think that that fits the tone of a book like this. You know, these organic reavers might be the best foils to open with. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing by the fact that they had Domino that these reavers are tied in somehow with that Court of Owls group we saw last issue, which which is fine. No problems with that. I think that's a, that's a, fine, uh, a, fine, a fine set of bad guys for our opening uh, salvo here for, for X-Force. Uh, Quentin Choir. Oof. Now, this is a character I should absolutely hate, but I can't. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, I don't know how, because, I mean, looking at him, it's like, oh, man, I'm going to hate this guy, but I, I just enjoy so many of the scenes with him in it. And, you know, I will say they definitely softened him up quite a bit from the Morrison days, right? Uh, I mean, the whole thing with him getting, like, I think he got, like, a Hitler haircut in, like, his first appearance, you know? Like, his his whole his whole look was based on something pretty bad. <laughs> and he was just a real, a real a-hole. He still is. Um, and, uh, I mean, but he's more fun now. He's, like, fun in, like, a, like a pain-in-the-ass sort of way. And I, I've always felt that he and Wolverine play with each other really well. I think they're a good pair. And I think they're I think they're a lot of fun together. Other than that, though, there's really not a whole lot more to like analyze here. 
I think that's something we're going to discover as we go deeper into these books. I mean, these aren't really building the way House of X and Powers of X did. You know, these are these are a different animal. So there's going to be a less to you know parse out and less to discuss. But uh, we're we're still going to do it. We're still going to put in the work. Um, that said, I did I, I did enjoy this. I liked it. I'm very, very happy we didn't see Xavier just walking around already. <laughs> I like that they're, you know, playing a bit with the tension. Um, like we've said before, you know, they're, they're changing the stakes. It's no longer purely about life and death. It's about everything else. And uh, I'd say it's a fine enough issue, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to what's to come. So a net positive with X-Force number two. And, uh, of course, next episode is Fallen Angels number two, which uh, wasn't... Everybody's favorite <laughs> last time out And uh, as evidence of that, let's hop into the mailbag here Because I uh, got a letter from Damien discussing Fallen Angels number one He says, I loved Marauders and New Mutants X-Men was okay, Excalibur was disappointing I didn't like X-Force, but I hated Fallen Angels And I think we're in a similar boat here, as far as our preferences for those first issues. I I can't say that I outright hated Fallen Angels, but, you know, that might be my... I've got something of a current year comics cushion. (laughs) You know, it's a knee-jerk reaction where I'm afraid that I am rating current year stuff on an unfair metric, you know? Um... I've mentioned before, I used to be a reviewer of Current Year Comics at a site that they, where they used a, you know, a X out of 10 grading system, you know, where if you go to Comic Book Roundup, you know, if you want to get in with the publishers, everything's a 10 out of 10. Uh, this was an honest, or this is, and it's still, it's weird comic, weird science DC comics. They're still uh, alive and kicking. They're still doing great things, but uh, they their thing is that... Uh, they weren't swayed in that sort of a way. It was honest reviews, honest scores. Um, that said, I would cushion my scores, you know, to cushion any potential biases I might have had against, you know, things like the nuts and bolts of current year comics, right? Things like let's look at a, let's look at Dawn of X here. Info pages, a double page spread for our credits. You know, that stuff that in my in my reviewer mind, I would cut points out for. Even though it doesn't hurt anything, I just don't like that it's taking up pages. Um, because I'm used to comics being told a certain way. So, in order to combat that, or to counter that, I would grade on a curve. You know, I try to reconcile that, you know, in my peanut brain, that something like, this comic is not for me, doesn't exactly doesn't exactly equal this is a bad comic, right? Something that isn't for me can still be a good comic. Something that is for me can still be a bad comic, right? There's definitely overlap from time to time. So maybe I've been doing this so long that the way that I grade comics has somehow bled into the way I describe them? I don't know. I mean, that said, Fallen Angels definitely wasn't for me. Um, Like I say... Most times, I, I'm, I'm, in case it isn't completely obvious here, I kind of fence it. <laughs> you know, I have things I don't like, I have things I like, but I try to, I don't know, I try to reconcile that with, you know, somebody might have picked up Fallen Angels number one and thought it was the best thing in the world. 
you know. Um, it wasn't for me, but at the same time, I can't say that I necessarily hated it. But again, that might just be my fence-sittery uh, cushion kicking in. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I'm quite surprised by how positive you were about this. Maybe maybe go knowing it's a mini helps. I bought it thinking it was the start of an ongoing. I do not get Quanan. Her whole creation retcon happened in an era where I had given up on the X-Men, and I mainly think of her as a punchline. She was created to explain how Betsy changed. After her first appearance, everyone wrote in to point out it contradicted the explanation of the original stories. So they retconned her. Laughable. And yeah, Quanan or Revanche or whatever the hell they were calling her back then was definitely a solution in search of a problem back in the long ago. Um, you know, I, I joke that like it was almost as though Lobdell and friends saw people complaining that the Xbooks were like so hard to navigate and so hard to get into and decided to just like screw it. We'll up the ante here, <laughs> you know. Uh, having whichever Qbert on art made things even more confusing. Uh, since the purple-haired ladies, Psylocke and Quanan, they looked almost exactly alike. Outside of, like, which volumizing shampoo they used. Uh, you know, uh, Psylocke did not have any, like, purely Asian um, features, and Quanan didn't have any purely British features. They, they just looked like Cubert women, you know? Um, I mean, I still remember the big reveal. You know, because, like, there was the cover, it was, like, X-Men, like, 21, 22, volume 2, and, like, it's the X-Men all freaked out, and there's, like, a hooded character before them pulling their man, pulling their hood off, but you don't see who's, what the face looks like, and, you know, you look at that, and you're, like, hyped, you know, who is this gonna be? So we see her on hood, and I just thought it was, like, okay, Psylocke has a clone, because facially, she was damn near identical. The only immediate difference you saw is that, that she, like, might have gotten a perm, you know, because her hair was bigger. It was uh, definitely a flat reveal to someone like me. Um, back to Damien. He says, this book felt like one of those awful 90s books where everything is dark and sexy and there's lots of cyberpunkish nonsense. Even the layouts lean into that. Close-up eye, close-up lips, boob shot, butt shot. Everyone has secret children or secret siblings and aren't ninjas cool. And yes, your point is very well taken. I feel like, you know, it's almost like like this could have been released today as a lost image comic from the mid-90s. You know, something they found in the drawer with like a 1995 date on it. And I don't think anyone would have batted an eye because you're spot on there. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I really didn't like this. Uh, by the way, the 80s Fallen Angel series has a special place in my heart. It came out at just the right time for me, and I enjoyed the combination of ridiculousness and high melodrama. When I heard there was going to be a Fallen Angel series, I genuinely hoped they were going to resurrect Don the Mutant Lobster. <laughs> and it's funny, um, over the last little while, I've been hearing a lot of fond memories of that 80s Fallen Angels. If, you, if anyone listens to Moratory Mondays, also on this channel, uh, me and Chris Bailey, we make fun of it a lot. As being boring Because uh, Like every month For a little while The bullpen bulletins page uh, Would would like Rave about it And we're like Oh this boring series And And folks have actually Reached out to express Their fondness For the run um, So maybe 
you know, I haven't talked about the the books club in a while. Maybe uh, maybe Fallen Angels might have to get a revisit um, somewhere down the line. I, I swear, though, I don't think I actually ever made it all the way through. I know I've tried a few times, but I don't think I actually read all, what was it, eight issues, maybe ten issues. I don't think I've actually ever made it to the end. Um, that said, I did just find my 80s run because I filed the uh, first Dawn of X Fallen Angels issue right behind it. So I know where it is. <laughs> so if it ever comes down to uh, talking about it, uh, I'm open to it. Now back to Damien. He says, thanks again for the podcast. It was great to hear more feedback. I didn't know about the 10 years since Fantastic Four timescale mentioned by Al Sedano. I wonder if that's intact. I would place Franklin in his teens, which would imply a longer continuity. He is a reality warper, though, so maybe he made himself older with his powers. And yes, that, that was news to me as well. You know, I knew there was some sort of formula Marvel used to slide the scale. I just really wasn't sure how hard and fast it was, right? Maybe the movie universe has something to do with it? Uh, or maybe it's just something we're not supposed to think about? I don't know. Um, you know, not to go on a, on a New 52 rant again, but... Uh, when that launched, they tried to adhere to a, like a five-year scale, you know, where when we met these characters, only five years had passed since, you know, the start of the, uh, like, Superman's arrival or something. Now, naturally, they kicked this off with Batman showing off his four Robins, which, I mean, four Robins in five years? Come on, that's kind of a mess, isn't it? Oh, boy. Well, thank you so much for the um, email, Damien. It's always a pleasure. Next, we have a message from Jason. This is a spoiler-free X of Tens, or <laughs> X of Swords, or Tens of Swords uh, bit here from him. Uh, he says, I'm told that a bunch of the stuff being mentioned in X of Tens, he wants to get that trending, hashtag ECKS of Tens, and I think uh, we should try to do that for sure. He says, I think a bunch of the stuff being mentioned in X of Tens is out of the Alan Moore Captain UK run in the 80s. The only Alan Moore I've read is Watchmen and Swamp Thing, so I'm pretty lost. And I tell you what, I've said this before, I think I've said this almost every episode <laughs> the past few times here, the more Captain Britain stuff is wild. Um, you you might never look at the character the same way again. Um, I always kind of discounted Captain Britain as kind of an also-ran, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have Captain America, they've got Captain Britain. But this run... Oof, it's a goodie. Um, I can't say enough good stuff about it. Um, I replied to this message by saying if I uh, had to choose two Alan Moore works to take with me on a desert island, which would be a wildly specific sort of endeavor, right? Um, I would pick his Captain Britain and his Miracle Man. Those are the two my two favorite Alan Moore works. Um, Captain Britain is just... It's an amazing run. Um... I never, uh, I never cared for Captain Britain. I always thought he was just, I thought he was a lame character. I didn't think he was that great. But uh, when, I, when I read that, uh, that Moore run, um, oof, it's good stuff. Um, definitely highly recommended. Um, and uh, that might be, a, might be a series that I, that I do some talking about pretty soon. Because that's a... Uh, I'm looking for an excuse to reread it, so <laughs> you never know. Uh, but thank you, Jason. Uh, uh, thank you for keeping um, the X of Tens talk spoiler-free for uh, for those of us who aren't there and uh, probably won't get there for a little while. But uh, I definitely appreciate the information here. 
Um, because if we if we do get some of that Captain Britain stuff covered in the interim here, maybe we'll be uh, you know we'll be we'll we'll get the extra credit on X of Swords or Ten of Swords or Tens of X's or X's of Tens. But uh, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, now finally, we have a, a letter from our friend Al Sedano. He says, first of all, nice to see you're continuing the show post-Hoxpox. It gives me a reading order for whenever I get to that point. And I hope, <laughs> I hope the reading order that I'm doing is the right one. Um, I've mentioned it before. Uh, the, the lists online are conflicting and contradictory, and sometimes they cluster, you know, fan, uh, uh, 4X caliber issues in a row. And I don't know. Right now, I'm going with the... Uh, the Basically, the by the by the, the sale date, um, the order that they list in the back of these early Dawn of X books, where they kind of give you an order that you should be reading them. I'm just following that for now. I think that goes away pretty soon. At which time we'll have to reevaluate and see uh, see how we do it. Um, I do think when we get to things like uh, X Men Fantastic Four, I'll probably just do those all in one clump. Um, Empire X-Men, we'll probably do those in one clump um, But uh, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll play, we'll play it by year I think you know, there's a free comic book day uh, story that we'll be covering There's those giant sizes that we'll be getting to So there's a lot of stuff that, uh, doesn't, that may not exactly fall into place That we'll just have to uh, use our judgment on um, Back to Al, he says Okay, so my thoughts after reading House of X number 2 and listening to episode 3 Now of course House of X number 2 was our first Red-colored uh, issue Where uh, something big went down We found out the uncanny lives of Mora Now Al says I want to know what cured what cured Mora magically when she was 13 Was it all just due to her mutant power Or is there more to it Well we haven't heard anything else um, I'm going to assume It was her It was just Maybe her illness was her mutant power manifesting Maybe it really wasn't an illness I don't. I don't know uh, we've seen, you know, we've seen mutants react differently to having their uh, powers manifest, so maybe it was that. Um, he, he continues, I'm not as bothered by the text pages as you, but since I'm reading it in a hardcover, maybe you're right about it working better there. And I, I, I stand by that. I feel like if you read House of X, Powers of X as a collected edition, the info pages and the quote pages and the mostly blank pages probably... They probably give you a little bit of a breather and just signify that you know you're at a chapter ending or you're just getting information. When you're reading a 22-page or 20-page or an 18-page comic that you're paying five dollars for, and it feels like every third page is just text, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a pain. Al continues in Mora's third life when she's killed by the Brotherhood, you missed Avalanche. But he was hiding in the shadows and doesn't speak, so it's understandable. Yeah, I didn't mention him. Yeah, I, I must have missed him. Um, Al continues, Since you mentioned Avengers vs. X-Men, I wanted to say Cyclops was right. Hell yeah, he was. <laughs> I remember uh, when Avengers vs. X-Men number one came out. Um, I went to my local shop, and he had two great big, like... Like bowls that you would like put chips in, you know, for like a if you had like a, a party, you know. He had these two big bowls and there were pins, buttons. And one would say, I'm with the Avengers, and one would say, I'm with the X-Men. And I swear, I was the only one to pick up an I'm with the X-Men button. 
You know, because he said you can only take one. You had to pick a side. You can't have them both. You got to pick a side. Everyone went with the Avengers. I was the only one to pick up an X-Men one. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very, uh, I'm very passionate that Cyclops was, in fact, right. Uh, Al continues, the death of Mora 4, I'm wondering if that was supposed to be the Days of Future Past timeline. It just has that feel to it. And yes, flipping through it right now, um, it does have, you know, uh, a Sentinel taking out Wolverine very much like the cover of, uh, of Uncanny X-Men 142. So yes, that very well could be. Uh, Days of Future Past, right there. Uh, Mora 9, the way she and Apocalypse are holding hands and fighting to the death together. Was there a romance between them? I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of Apocalypse being in a relationship. And, uh, well, you'll find out more about that as you continue uh, through uh, Hoxpox there. Um, back to Al, he says, I can understand your issue with the thought that they have that they have a way to retcon this all built into the story. But let me offer this perspective. Marvel likes to do stories that change things. Superior Spider-Man, New X-Men, Peter Parker outing his identity. They also like to retcon these things and go back to the traditional status quo. Out of the examples I mentioned, Superior Spider-Man did it the best, most likely because Dan Slott had it set up from the beginning, if I remember correctly. The other two were messy, and were done either after the creator left or by duress. If Marvel is just going to retcon this anyway, I'd rather have it be planned. And yes, I, I can definitely understand that. And uh, Superior Spider-Man, I think that is probably Dan Slott's finest work. I think that was... That's one of those things like Quentin Quire. I should have hated it. You know, I should have just despised it, but... I'd be lying if I said it wasn't the top of my stack every week it came out. I absolutely ate it up. Too bad everything that came after kind of sucked. But uh, Superior Spider-Man, that whole run was a blast. Uh, Really, really enjoyed it. Um, But I I definitely, I I can agree with that perspective, Al, about, uh, you know, Marvel does what Marvel does. And if they're going to retcon, you might as well plant the seed so it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um... The only thing that I would say is that, you know, I I always worry about, you know, getting the toothpaste back in the tube, you know, getting the genies back in the bottles here. And when you when we explore stories like that handle things like resurrection, things like these high concepts, I mean, that's the big buzzword around Hickman, high concept. When you change that, when you do retcon, when you do go to a different status quo, when you revert we already saw this, right? I mean, we already saw this timeline. It's not. This isn't a what if. This isn't a Elseworlds. This is a story that's being told that we're supposed to be following as the the now, the real, the six one six. It's hard for me to reconcile that. I'm just I'm just a guy who hates retcons. So <laughs> I'm gonna be a, I'm gonna be a. Kind of a tough sell on such a thing here. I, like, I mean, let's look at Peter Parker outing his identity. And uh, this is me totally going off on a tangent here, but uh, Peter Parker unmasks, right? This isn't a hoax. This isn't an imaginary story. This isn't a dream. We see how the world reacts, right? We see how Jonah reacts to finding out Peter Parker is Spider-Man. We see how New York reacts to knowing who Spider-Man is. We see how the world reacts. This is real. For the time that it was in continuity, it was real. That said, 
we stuff that genie back in the bottle, but it doesn't it doesn't all fit anymore, right? Because now we know what would happen if. I think that's the biggest thing about so many of these stories is that we we talk about stakes a lot on this show, right? I mean, what are the stakes to Parker's identity? What are the stakes to Peter Parker dying? What are the stakes to the X-Men dying? We want to see what comes next. We want to see how people react. With something like outing an identity, we already know how the, the world reacts. With the X-Men starting up at Krakoa, we know how the world reacts now. So it'll never be a, a question anymore. And I, I realize that this is kind of a wobbly analogy, but uh, it's just it feels like the stakes are just really, really screwy. And I, I have a feeling that Dawn of X, this Hickman era of X-Men, will probably end with Mora dying. And Lord only knows where we'll wind up. <laughs> you know, X-Men Volume 6, Number 1, or Uncanny X-Men Volume 14, Number 1, whatever we get. Um, But, you know, your point is very well taken. If, if that's the way Marvel's going to do business, at least it'll make sense this way. You know, they, they do have that back door, and uh, I'm guessing that before long they will use it. Uh, back to Al's message. It says, I do like my digital comics, but in this instance, I'm very happy I picked up the hardcover. The Mora time, Timelines graph is much easier to navigate this way. And yes, I, I would imagine this would be kind of a bear to read on a, uh, on a tablet. Um, the, Mora, the Mora pages especially, where it does work a lot better in the, uh, the hard format. Um, finally, yes, I'm in agreement with you that the Tenth Life of Mora is basically the one we've been reading all these years. So, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's what everybody's been been alluding to. Um, I was a little bit wobbly on it toward the end there <laughs> because I wasn't sure how everything fit uh, until people just told me, you know, hey, everything fit, just deal with it, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> That's that. Um, Al wraps up. I think that's everything. On to the next issue. And thank you so much for reaching out, Al. I do hope you continue to as we work our way through. Um, I'm definitely uh, interested in hearing all your thoughts. And uh, I hope you continue as well into the Dawn of X landscape here. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to pick your brain on, uh, on the new status quo. So thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody, as always. Uh, if you'd like to reach out and uh, engage with the program, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all that good stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com or xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, just search for 90s X-Men on Facebook. It's a group, and it's a, it's a group called From Claremont to Claremont, which is a show that is still... I'm still working on it. <laughs> it's just a big show. Um, and it takes a long, long time to uh, put all those pieces together. But it is it is still a, a thing that exists. It's still a thing that is uh, on the forefront of my mind. Um, what else? Uh, yes, the audio archives. ChrisandReggie.podbean.com You can find all of the programs at, of the Chris and Reggie channel, which is... Uh, X-Lapse, Moratorium Mondays, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, Real Comics History, The Gatherums, Young Animal, Sandman, what else? Chris is on Infinite Earths, uh, all those shows. A lot, a lot of shows. Uh, thousands of hours of audio, if, uh, if you have thousands of hours to kill. But I think that's where I'll put a pin in it today. Uh, just one more giant thank you to everyone listening, and uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.